0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey guys, it's good to see you tonight. Uh, If you are new with us, I know Brandon said it just a minute ago, but if you're new with us and I've never met you, my name is Joe, one of the leaders here. And uh, I'm excited to dive back into our study of the gospel of Luke this evening. And if you're new with us and you don't know, you've been with us for a while and you just forgot, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for well over a year. And we're just now in Luke chapter 11. One of the things that we value a ton is just a real slow, soaking study through God's Word. And we typically begin at the beginning of one book and work our way through that slowly. We'll take breaks periodically here and there for a couple of weeks of topical things. But <clears throat> we try to stay in one book and just really saturate and marinate in that our belief is that we live in a, uh, we live in a kind of a high pressure, fast cooker, microwave type of a society where we want everything right now, and and yet when we arrive at God's word, we believe that it should be more like a slow cooking process where we can get all of the flavor and all of the nourishment that God meant for our souls and our hearts, and so we we take a real slow. Um, process as we study and so that being said in the gospel of luke we're in chapter 11 this week we'll be in verses 14 through 26 and as you're turning there in your bibles i want to make mention that that one of our favorite statements here in our church we have a number of them but one of them is our vision statement we say oftentimes that we want to be a gospel-centered church family that grows disciples who glorify god you might be saying, why is this important? This is important because we believe this is what God has called us to become as a group of people. As a church, we are just a little over three years old from the day we began meeting in my living room with six adults there. Uh, And then about six, eight, 12, 10, 12 months later, we went kind of into a public launch and, and have been more public since then and have grown. And at this point, I was just in a meeting this week with one of our leaders, and we were talking about how we were at—we are right at twenty-nine official adult members and twenty-eight kids. So you would call that adult member, adult members, and then youth members, maybe. So we're just right at <clears throat> that sixty mark, and so God's just been really good in that. And, and one of the things I want to say is that uh, as we seek to be a gospel-centered church family that grows disciples who glorify God, one of the primary means, one of the primary ways, one of the most important things that we think we could do as a church family is study God's word, uh, which includes the preaching of God's word, and it's something we're really passionate about, And, uh, and so that's what we're going to dive into here in just a minute. And so hopefully you're there in Luke chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 14. Hopefully you can kind of keep up with me. Begin in verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him keep seeking from him a sign from heaven." But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you, and when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted, and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And let's pray before I begin to preach. Father, it's good to gather here tonight with other people. It's good to be in the presence of other people who have come together needy for you. And Lord, I, just, I have to just admit that even as, as we begin our time in worship tonight, I just admit that my, my heart was distracted and it was unfocused and it was being carried along by the cares of the world and the distractions from this week and just the difficult things running through my mind and yet in in, in the moments of worship as we Saying to you, and as Brandon shared a passage earlier about if we, if we do not praise you, then you would cause the rocks to cry out. I was just affected deeply by your presence. Speaking through that word and then just moving through the praises of your people. God, this is so good to be in this room, in this place, in this space, and to be moved into your presence Lord, I just admit and I know that as I come to the pulpit tonight, I sense a real deep feeling of just complete inadequacy and weakness, just total and absolute helplessness whereby there's even something inside of me that says, what do you have to say as you step on this stage tonight? And I I believe, Lord, that I'm not the only one that, that comes tonight feeling this way. This sense of what do I have to offer? What do I have to bring to the table? And the answer is nothing. Deep down inside, Lord, that we know that that what we bring to the table is really nothing without you. So, Lord, this evening, as we open your word and as we dive into your word, we just, Lord, we beg you and we ask you and we invite you to be present among us and that your spirit would just be moving, God, that you would move in a very bold and powerful way, God, that you would... Uh, bind up the hearts of the brokenhearted, that you would give strength to those who feel weak, that you would that you would crush those of us that walk in here with pride. Lord, help us to, to catch a vision and a glimpse and a picture of you in all of your strength and all of your majesty and all of your power and all of your glory. Lord, I pray that you would just set us aside. I pray, God, that you would Open our minds and our hearts. To be affected deeply by your spirit. And that, and that you would just do radical work deep inside of us, Lord. That you would like do surgery deep inside of our hearts, Lord. I know that there are places deep within each and every one of us that, that is fortified, like a, like a fortified city. Uh, places inside of us that, that have deep wounds and deep hearts and deep sin roots. And Lord, we, we need you because we cannot change that about us. So we need you, Lord Jesus, to be present among us and to, and to speak powerfully to us through this word. Lord, we pray that you would be present and that this would be you speaking and that you would just remove me. I pray, God, that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that you would use them to bring you great honor and do great work in our midst. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. So I have a little bit of a confession to make as we dive into this text. I take you back a ways. One of the things I used to love a ton when I was younger was professional wrestling. I was talking to my friend Tyler about this this week. It's the reason for all of our joking around in the midst of Brandon doing the announcements. Tyler loves wrestling too because what I'm not talking about is like good wrestling, okay? Uh, Wrestling like you would go see in high school. I'm talking about professional wrestling, WWE kind of wrestling. In fact, there's a picture in the next slide that they might pop up for you that'll help to give you a little bit of a better picture to wrap your mind around what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the WWE style of wrestling. I was totally hooked on this when I was younger. And to be honest with you, like in some of my weak moments, like when nobody else is around, I'll still flip back to those channels and watch some of that just to get a kick out of what I used to be. T- I mean, we used to spend hundreds of dollars a year probably just ordering the stupid pay-per-views for these WrestleMania things and so on and so forth. And, and I don't know how many of you uh, have watched wrestling or get off on that, but if you would just Track with me for a minute, even if you're like totally, completely detested by uh, wrestling. If you would just hang with me for a minute, I think that you'll find that the illustration will do us justice as we continue our study here in a minute. Uh, one of the things that I really loved as I uh, watched wrestling when I was younger was kind of this this storyline. We all know it's fake, right? Okay, we just all get it off our chest. It's fake. I mean, you got real uh, athletes that are diving around in the ring and trying to hurt each other, but the rest of it, there's a storyline. They got hundreds of writers that are writing these storylines. And in the storyline, what would inevitably happen as you watch wrestling is there would, there would typically be some poor soul in the middle of the ring who was getting the snot kicked out of him by a couple of big bad dudes and you're sitting on the edge of your seat if you're really into it, because you're rooting for the, the underdog, right? You're rooting for the little guy. That's one of the great thematic stories that floats its way through the wrestling genre is that you would see these little guys getting the snot kicked out of them, and you're, you're just sitting there waiting for that moment when like this big, massive superheroes music would like crash into everything. I'm like, my guy was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Okay, that was my guy. My guy was Stone Cold. And, and so, you, what I was always waiting for was for the shattering glass, if you've ever seen Stone Cold. It was always shattering glass, and he'd come stomping down the middle of the rain, throwing beer cans and middle fingers and ripping his vest off, and he'd jump up in. I mean, he always comes sliding right underneath the under the bottom rope, you know? And he'd come up, and there'd be like six guys, and they'd just be like, BAM! BAM! You just be like knocking him out, and then then what you'd be waiting for is like the Stone Cold Steve Austin stunner, grabs him around the back of the head, drops him, and then. I mean, if it wasn't him, maybe it was the rocks was the people's elbow and the people's eyebrow getting up. And, or maybe it was, uh, maybe it was the undertaker with his whole tombstone move or whatever it was. The bottom line is this. The thing that drew me to wrestling is the same thing that draws all of us to a storyline like this. And it's this. That Jesus is stronger. There's always got to be somebody that is stronger. And as we're watching a show like that, what gets at us deep inside is that sense in which... I can identify with the little guy in the ring getting the crap kicked out of him. I mean, can I get an amen or a hand raise from anybody? Isn't that kind of what life feels like sometimes? That, that I got nothing to bring to the table, um, getting the snot kicked out of me by everyday life. This just kind of flat out sucks and I need somebody bigger than me to come in and say to dad, I need a hero, right? I need a hero. Reading my Porter Brook studies this week, Eric and I were having this conversation late in the garage the other night that one of the things that our culture lacks today is actual heroes whose character have been shaped and molded by the gospel message and by Jesus himself. Our, our culture lacks heroes, and what we have is a bunch of people who think it's okay to just self-express all over the place. Well, well let's not discipline him, honey, he's just expressing himself. It's okay. What that has led to is a bunch of rock stars who are not accountable for anything, in the face of a lack of real people, real men, real heroes who will step inside the ring and say no to evil. What happens as a result is that a culture begins to erode. And we are more we are more attracted to the uh, the rock star mentality. We're more attracted to the person who speaks well. We're more attracted to that thing which serves us the best. Because if we can just hoard more things, gain more experience, get more friendships, so on and so forth, spend more money, fill our houses full of things that we do not need. Now we can express ourselves through inanimate objects that don't actually carry the face of God, or the expression of God in any way, and then it's just us expressing ourselves at the expense of the fact that God was supposed to be expressing himself through us to a dying world, if that makes any sense, right? So what happens is we've got a whole world full of people just wanting to express themselves about everything, because we have not submitted and surrendered to to he who is stronger than anything. And so, and so, so what I'm saying is I think that as a church and as a people, we need to get a picture for God being bigger than anything else. But, but oftentimes what we do is we have a tendency to elevate us above God. We, we have a tendency to recreate God in our own image rather than us being created in his image and then expressing who he is to the world. We're attempting just to express ourselves, our hurt, our pain, our anger our happiness our joy it's all about me and i and the self fulfillment that i get out of everything which basically elevates me and self to the level of god and it tries to push god off the throne but the reality is is that you can't actually push god on the throne but the question is this is is god really on the throne in your life so there are many in in america today who would claim to be christian many Because to claim to be Christian or to claim to like Jesus or to love Jesus would be somewhat popular. But to actually live in a way that Jesus commands or asks us to or leads us to or models that we should, that's unpopular because the way that Jesus lived was counter-cultural. It was counter to what was happening in the culture and the stories and the circles around him. What we continuously see all throughout the text, all throughout this uh, all throughout this gospel as Luke paints the picture of who Jesus is. As we see this picture of Jesus being stronger. And to be really specific today, I'm going to give you kind of five things. I'm going to let the, the guys with the PowerPoint in the back just click through as I say them and then we'll, we'll land there on that final slide and I'll do the best I can to kind of work point by point through them. There's five things that I see in the text that, that Jesus is stronger than, in Lucas painting this picture, and the first one is this, that Jesus is stronger than the power of demons. Jesus is stronger than the power of demonic forces which come against us, number one. And then number two, Jesus is stronger than the power of antagonism and skepticism, and we're going to unpack that a little bit here in just a minute as well. Jesus is stronger than the power, and you know how powerful antagonistic and skeptical people are? I mean, they're pretty powerful. Somebody that's antagonistic and skeptical would send my world into a tailspin in a hurry where I'm on the mat, like, tapping out. Like, I need somebody to come in and stun this dude so I can get up off the mat, right? Jesus is stronger than the power of antagonism and skepticism. And then number three, Jesus is stronger than the power of our thoughts. Ever attempt to think about things and think that you got everything all figured out only to find out later that you don't have everything figured out? That's Jesus once again proving to you that he's much stronger and much bigger than your thoughts. Scriptures are really clear that our thoughts are below his thoughts and his thoughts are above ours. His purposes are beyond our understanding, our comprehension. Therefore, it does us a great disservice to try to elevate ourselves and our mere intellectual thinking into a place that we think we've got God all figured out and in a box and life, period. Because as soon as we think that, like somebody's going to come around and kick the sides out of the box that we called life. So demons, antagonism, skepticism, and our thoughts. Number four, Jesus is stronger than the power of any defensive fortress that we can set up. We'll see this in the text here in just a little bit. We oftentimes, as people, set up different defensive structures to protect us from being hurt, to protect us from feeling things, and to protect us uh, from losing And we'll see this in the types as well. So Jesus is stronger than the power of demons, antagonism, skepticism, our thoughts, and any defensive fortress. And then number five, Jesus is stronger than the power of moralism. He's stronger than the power of our moralistic deeds. The problem for us is that we're always trying to earn things from Jesus, right? So number one, Jesus is stronger than the power of demons. In verse 14, if you look back at verse 14 with me, you'll see that Jesus is confronting a demonically possessed man, right? And the demonically possessed man that Jesus is confronting is mute. This demon that is inhabiting this person is causing the man to be mute. One of the main one of the main. Uh, A desires or jobs of Satan at work in the world today is to stop the praises of God. Go back to the early story of how Satan fell from heaven. He fell because he wanted to draw worship to himself. He wanted to draw worship and attention and praise away from our creator God and our Father in heaven. And so one of the major things that Satan attempts to do in people's lives is to silence them. If Satan can silence you and stop you from worshiping God with your life, with your words, with your actions, through your relationships, through your belongings, through your pursuits, if he can mute you and stop you from doing that, Satan would believe that he had won. And what Jesus has done in this text is he stepped in and he's knocked this demon out. He's literally jumped into the ring, grabbed the, grabbed the demon, slammed him, tossed him out of the ring, right? This is what Jesus is doing in the text. He's stronger than demonic forces that seek to destroy or silence you and I. And one of the things that we see in this scripture is that, that when Jesus does this, this massively powerful thing, it causes some people to marvel. I want you to think about this word, marvel. It's the same as being awed. I mean, just think, when was the last time you were in awe of what God was doing in your heart and in your life? When was the last time that you were, you were in awe of the way that Jesus was speaking to you through uh, his word and through the community of, of uh, Christ followers around you? When was the last time you were in just deep awe marveling at the work that Jesus was doing. It reminds me of young people when they first get into a relationship, right? When they first get into a relationship. What happens is when you get into a relationship, you start to just think about that other person all the time. When can I text him? When can I call him? When can I see him again? This is that same picture of awe and marvel. It's the idea that your attention cannot be taken off. It's the same as when you first get married, too, for you newlyweds in the room. It's very, very similar, right? But what happens in this relation, don't be looking at me that way, right? What happens in this relationship with Jesus is that over time, sometimes the newness wears off and we begin to lose that sense of awe. We begin to lose that sense of marvel over who Jesus is and what he has done. And what Jesus is doing in this text is so powerful and it's so strong that it causes people to be in awe and marvel at him. And the question is, is where are you at tonight in in terms of experiencing God's power and strength at work in your life? Philip Riken, commenting on this text. He says, when we come to know Christ, our mouths are restored to their right and proper use. Instead of cursing God and warring against others with our words, We are able to pray to God and speak truth to our neighbor. This can only happen by the grace of God because without Christ, we can only speak words that come from a godless, graceless heart. Think about this with me. You think about all the things that you struggle with in your life, whether it be sexual impurity, whether it be addictions, whether it be the inability to hold a relationship together, whether it be just the difficulty of just working on a team at a job, Whatever it is that you have struggled with all of your life, you can rest assured that there is some sort of spiritual power at work attempting to keep you off the course that Jesus has pre-planned and laid out for you. But ultimately, what is also taking place in the background is that Jesus is doing war on your part and for your sake to draw you close to him so that he can be the strong person in your life. Number two, Jesus is stronger than the power of antagonism and skepticism. Jesus kicks out this demon that's in this man who's seeking to stop this other man from praising God. And the first set of people are like, wow, oh, that's cool. But then there's these other people, there's two other groups of people. The first group are kinda your antagonists. This is what you saw me doing earlier with Brandon on the stage, antagonizing talking back to him while he's trying to talk, right? Living example for you. How many of you have ever experienced that? Some of you have kids, and you understand what it it means to have a kid antagonize the heck out of you all night long. Like, why, 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 why? Some of you have spouses, and you understand what it means to have antagonism (laughs) present in a relationship. Some of you just have friends, and you understand what it looks like to be antagonized. And some of you here are like me, and you're really good at antagonizing other people because you get a kick out of it, and you're as sick as I am, okay? Right? This is a picture of antagonism. It's kind of that picture of kind of the schoolyard bully who's always out there trying to jab you in the side, always uh, twist your arm up behind you, always get on your case, say, I'm going to see you after school, right? Just antagonizing you and causing anxiety to happen in your mind, worry. And struggling and stress are kind of the outcome of what happens when people are antagonizing you. you got people that are coming after you. They're talking to you. They're trying to get you to change your mind on things that you are pretty set on. Maybe for you, it's, it's that you are following Jesus. And in your family, you've got some who don't follow him. And they can't figure out why you're following him the way that you are. And they continue to antagonize you. I had a man years ago who would antagonize me all the time and come after me and be like, why are you following Jesus? Don't you know he's just a crutch? Like, why do you need a crutch like religion? And this guy would just antagonize me all the time. And then you got skeptics. you got skeptics in the crowd as well. And I would imagine we've got some skeptics in the room too. I can be kind of a skeptical kind of a person as well. Skeptics are kind of the people that are always standing back kind of like, show me more. Like, I haven't seen enough yet. Like, when I walk outside and I see the sky and all that's there, and the cosmos and the, the blood moons, that's not enough for me. I need to see more. Jesus, you need to show me a much more powerful display of your strength. That's kind of where a skeptic would land. You believe what it must have been like to be Jesus? Right? To be Jesus and actually be doing God's work. To be Jesus and to be doing God's work, to be helping a person in a community, and to have the people that are standing around antagonize you and ask for bigger signs. Like, oh, you kicked out a demon. Yeah, that's nice. He couldn't talk a little bit ago. Now he can talk just fine. I'm sure that wasn't by God's power. That had to have been by Satan's power for sure. Like, you're doing Satan's work. You're not even doing God's work. You're just doing Satan's work. I mean... Put yourself in Jesus' place for a moment, remembering that Jesus has experienced everything that you and I will ever experience and then some. Like if you've ever been in a relationship where someone has antagonized you to the point to where you are gritting your teeth and can't stop thinking about punching them in the nose, or flip side, Where someone has antagonized you to the point to where when you go to bed at night, your stomach is in knots, and you can't think straight and you can't sleep because of the things that they're saying about you. They're trying to silence you, trying to get you to shut up. This is what's happening in this text. Jesus is doing God's work and they're antagonizing him. Dude, that's not God's work. Are you kidding? God doesn't do that. That must be Satan's work kicking out demons. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of lick of sense. And I'm like, what were these guys smoking? You think about that, right? And that's the problem in the text, and that's what Jesus keys in on really quick. He's like, hey, let me just stop there and talk about you as antagonists. Let me just take what you're saying and flip it over on its head and show you how stupid you are. Jesus does this really well. I love the fact that Jesus does that. I love the fact that he's not afraid to go there. Philip Ryken says this. He says, Many people slander Jesus the same way today. Rather than acknowledge that his church is God's agent for doing good in the world, people think or say that what the church does is evil. And when the church is saying it for what is righteous, defending the unborn, for example, or proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to God, or promoting biblical standards for sexual purity, it is a wicked lie, it's a wicked lie to say that the church is unloving or ungodly. When such opposition comes, as it often does in a post-Christian society, it is an attack on Christ himself. And like as I read that, as I, as I was studying through this passage this week and wrestling with the implications of what was here and what Luke was saying, and as I read that one phrase, I began to remember now, Paul said something similar to this. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, right? It's actually against the spiritual powers and dark forces of the evil one all around us. And yet, and yet, what is one of Satan's primary ways of dividing the church and turning people's attention away from the strong presence of our Savior and King Jesus? If he can turn our attention away from Jesus, he would do it by turning people against each other. People who've been created in each other's image. Not each other's, but in creating God's image. I could see the look. One of you caught that. Been created in God's image, and yet we attack each other, right? And what Satan would do is try to turn us against each other. How do you think, how do you think marriages fall apart today? People turn against each other rather than looking to Jesus to be that strong presence in their life to overcome those things which are holding them back from worshiping the Lord and glorifying him and praising him and all that they think, say, and do. And then you got skeptics. The antagonists I feel are kind of worse. So I throw myself in the antagonist camp. I'm more antagonistic than I am skeptic. I can be skeptical, don't hear me wrong. And JC Rouse says this about skepticism. He says it is always one mark of a thoroughly unbelieving heart to pretend to want more evidence of the truth of religion. In other words, what J.C. Ryle is saying in regards to this text, and, and for us in our skeptical places of our hearts, is that God isn't interested in playing games with us. That's not what God's about. God's not interested in playing games with us. And the reason is because he's much stronger much bigger than that. Now, is Is Jesus willing to walk alongside of you and continue revealing himself to you? I know there are some of you that are here that are in some of those places where it's like, I'm just not sure that I believe yet. And there needs to be that space and that place where you know that, man, Jesus loves you, God loves you, he's pursuing you in many different ways. And the truth of the scriptures, a prayer being revealed to you and the power of the Spirit, I hope was at work But I think what's happening in this text is there are people who are basically stiff-arming Jesus because of their skepticism. They're in a place where they don't want to believe. They're putting a face on. They're kind of masking it over. And what Jesus is doing is kind of calling them right out in front of everybody for who they are. Look at the text with me real quick, and let me show it to you. Verse 15 through 16. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, as I move into verse 17, I love this picture of Jesus because all throughout the scriptures, you see these places where Jesus is like, man, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're about to say, Right? Think about this, if Jesus knows the thoughts of the people around him and ha- who haven't said anything, then he knows yours and mine's thoughts. If he was part of creation before the very foundations of the earth, if he is the supreme one through which and by which and for which all things have been created, then ultimately our thoughts are actually naked before our God in heaven in Christ Jesus. So Jesus sees what we think. my mom when I was young used to tell me, "Be careful you don't fantasize about anything that's not good, because Jesus can see your thoughts." That was really scary as a little kid. Have you ever hear that when you were a kid? Let ever tell you that. That's scary. Like be careful of those pictures that go through your head. And I know my mind. I know some of you guys' minds too. And what that does is like strikes fear into the heart of a young person. And now I've got this picture of God who's just this big, angry judge on a throne and not the loving father that he is. And don't hear me wrong. Like God is judge too. He's very righteous and he's very just. Yet at the same time then I begin to lack that picture of a loving father who comes right alongside of me. See, our skepticism and our antagonism towards Jesus doesn't shake him. It doesn't bother him. It doesn't bother him a bit because he's much stronger, than that. So not only that is he's bigger than our thoughts. And the reason he's bigger than our thoughts is because he's known them since the very beginning. Because he created us. The problem for us is that we're always trying to answer everything. We're trying to put everything in a little box, trying to explain everything away. And that's what these people were doing in this passage. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them: Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? This is an interesting piece as well. What Jesus is doing is he's taking their logical, intellectual arguments, and he's flipping them upside down and showing them just how illogical the arguments actually are. And he's saying, hey, I'm a bit stronger than your thoughts. I'm much higher I'm above your thoughts. Why is he doing this in this text? What is Jesus wanting to reveal to each of us? As Luke puts this together, what is it that he wants us to know about Jesus? He wants us to know that there is nothing that is bigger, nothing that is stronger, nothing that is greater, nothing that is more supreme, nothing that is more grand, nothing that is more glorious than Jesus himself. Demonic powers don't stand up to him power of our thoughts don't stand up to him. The power of antagonists and skeptics don't stand up to him. Jesus is stronger than anything. In verse 19, he moves on and he makes this kind of final argument in this portion. He says, hey, if I'm, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, which doesn't make any sense anyway, since Satan wants to shut people up and stop them from worshiping God. And since I've enabled this man to worship God again, it wouldn't make sense that I was doing this by Satan's power. So you just go ahead and talk all the trash you want to, You go ahead and talk about me and say that the work that I'm doing is not God's work, that's fine. You say whatever you need to say, but the reality of what you're saying is illogical and it's stupid. And furthermore, if that wasn't enough for you, as Jesus is arguing this out, I mean, Jesus, I think, would have made a great lawyer. I think he would have. And so furthermore, if that's not enough for you, Jesus says... Let's just talk about your sons. I don't know what the issue was in this certain area. If it was like other areas that Jesus would go into where they were like, that dude's from Nazareth. Like, did anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't know if that's the issue at hand or if it's just because the people, the other people in that region that are casting out demons are the sons of those people in that region. And maybe there's some pride that's going on because because when Jesus comes in and does this massive work, my guess is what Jesus did in casting this demon out had already been tried by many other people there and they couldn't do it. That's my guess as I try to comprehend what's happening in this text, is that there were other people that were in the community and they were like, yeah, we're spiritual. We're super spiritual. we got all sorts of power going on. They might have even been saying they were God followers. Like, we're following God. We're godly people. We go to the church down in the corner, and we've been doing some really great things. But the one person that maybe they couldn't get healed was this dude who was a mute. And then Jesus walks in, and in one verse, verse 14, notice that only verse 14 is actually dealing with what Jesus is doing. Like that's where all the action is. And then out of that it's a big fat argument. Like the, the main focus of this text is actually the argument between Jesus and the people that are standing there. It's him going to war in the way that he does. Proving that he is stronger than anything. Including the hyped up spiritual fanatics that are in the community. Claiming to be something when they're really not. And the people that are there are like, well, our sons, they're kind of good people, but you, like, you're doing the work of Satan. I mean, imagine the bigotry and the hypocrisy that is taking place in this section of Scripture. You tracking with me? Am I the only one that sees this? You're tra- you tracking with me, right? So Jesus is like, hey, you think I'm doing the work of Satan? You don't don't think that the work that I'm doing here is from God himself. You don't think that God is manifesting himself in front of you. You're so skeptical and so antagonistic about my work in your midst, but you have actually said that your sons are godly people. Let me get this straight. Your sons are godly people, but I'm not. Sinking in, right? Jesus is like... Your sons are going to judge you then. <coughs> Therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 20, this is great. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that, that I cast out demons, then, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? If it is by the finger of God, everybody just hold up your pinky finger real fast, tiny little finger, Right? If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's referencing the power of the move of God's kingdom when it gets established in our midst, which points to Jesus. When Jesus uh, becomes famous in, in the midst of a group of people, then, then you can rest assured that the kingdom of God is being established in a place at a certain time, through a certain group of people. And this has to happen powerfully to make Jesus famous. So he says, all right, so, so either A, I did do all this work by the work and the power of Satan, which makes no philosophical or, or uh, logical sense whatsoever, um, so it's either that or, or I actually did it by, by the work of Jesus, either or God. So either A, Satan's working in me, or God the Father is at work in me. Like, you're going to have to figure that out. Like, if you're going to continue to take this other path that says that Satan is actually doing this work and it's actually evil to do good, then what's happening is we begin to identify that we're living in those times when good is called evil and evil is called good. Make sense? Like we, we live in that time just as much now as, as they ever did then. Just as the commentator showed earlier, that we still live in that time where the church and the people within the church for standing up what is right, even in a winsome and non judgmental way, but in a bold and powerful way, when we stand up for the truth of God's word, when we stand on the truth of God's word and the foundation of what his word says, we will be attacked. We will be attacked. People will say things about you that are not true. They will antagonize. They will be skeptical about the whether God is actually doing this work in you or not. Like, is it really going to last this time? How often have you been skeptical of that work inside of you just yourself? Just wondering, guys, is it really going to stick this time? And what what Luke wants us to see is that when Jesus does a work inside of us and it's Him doing it, it's actually by the finger of God. There is actually a quote by um, another commentator, like in the third century, in regards to this statement. When Jesus is talking about the finger of God, what He's referring to is the work of the Spirit. This commentator basically said that if God the Father preordained or predestined or pre planned before the foundations of the world a plan of which the way the world would happen, your life and my life, and he knows the numbers of the hairs in our heads, and he knows the things we will face, if he really is sovereign and knows all those things, and put these things together, then when Jesus comes from heaven to earth, as was planned, then Jesus is like the hand or the extension of God the Father here on earth, moving and doing things, right? And then, and then the spirit is the extension of the hand, it's the finger. And so you think of God the Father back early in the book of Genesis, right? Created the world by speaking a word. Created all things just by speaking a word. And his spirit was the one that then went out and created and did that work, correct? As he's doing that, it's as though the finger of God is doing that work. When Jesus says this, he's saying, and it's by the spirit of God... That I do this work. And if that's true, then the kingdom is here, visible among you, and it's come upon you. Moves on, and he says this. He says, When a strong man fully armed, verse 21 when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. So you get this picture of this guy inside of a palace. Loaded up, lock, stock, and barrel, AKs, ARs, 9 mills, swords, nunchucks, throwing stars, WWE action figures. Yeah. <laughs> when a straw man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Right, so somebody fully armed, like if I'm gonna sit in my house and protect my home and my family, if somebody's coming against me, you better bet. Like everything's coming out. Ain't nobody coming through my door without getting it full blast in the face. Jesus painting this picture of what this looks like. He says, Goods are safe. My family would be safe. He moves on, he says, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overtakes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is stronger than anything that we set up as some sort of a defensive fortress against him. When Jesus is sharing this in this text, what he's talking about in terms of a strong man is Satan himself. Remember, he's referring back to the fact that he just beat the snot out of some demon who was beating the snot out of some dude who should be worshiping Jesus. And so Jesus comes in, beats the side of this guy, and what he's saying is, hey, when there's a strong man inside of a house, like when there's a demon inside of some person, when there's some sort of demonic power that is overtaking you, when there is some sort of uh, a group of people uh, that are antagonizing you, that are being skeptical, even though you are skeptical about the work of God in the world and in your own life, you can rest and trust that that when my kingdom comes, it's going to be stronger than that which has been controlling you this entire time. That that which has been coming against you. My kingdom is stronger than that. And he's saying, when I come, when I come, I kick down the doors, I take away the armor that you thought protected you, and I take up residence. This is good news. Like, this is not a place for long faces. This is a place for smiles and amens. This is good news because inside of each of you or I are these spiritual forces at work at times in our lives where we need Jesus to come in, lay the smack down, and get us out. And what we can trust in is that Jesus is much bigger than that. He's stronger than anything that comes against you or I. Jesus ultimately is the strongest strong man. What are some of the ways that we set up defensive structures in our own lives? Some of the ways that we do this is we play blame games, get the attention off of us. Right? Blame games is one. Other ways that we try to defend ourselves is um, a lack of transparency, lack of vulnerability. We bounce in and out of community so that we never have to actually attach. And what Jesus wants to do is break down those strong walls that you thought might protect you. It's not that we do that um, knowingly. I think oftentimes it's the leftover spiritual battle at work deep inside of us that causes these things to happen. And so Jesus wants to establish his kingdom inside of you. Final thought as our music team comes up, and as I need to wrap this up, would be this. Jesus is stronger than the power of demons. He's stronger than antagonism and skepticism. He's stronger than our thoughts. He's stronger than any defensive fortress that gets set up inside of us or that we set up for ourselves. But he's also stronger than the power of moralism any good deeds that you or I bring to the table are worthless without him. Notice what he says in verses 24 or 23 through 26. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person that passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The point of this final piece is as, as Luke is painting this picture of Jesus, as he ties together all the things that Jesus said in this section, Jesus boots the demon out. Jesus takes these antagonistic and intellectual, skeptical arguments, flips them over on, on their heads, shows them how stupid they really are. Jesus kind of uh, 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 confronts the thoughts of the people that are there as they think these things. Jesus also kind of discusses and confronts what it looks like for his kingdom to come and be established in a place where Satan once was ruling and reigning. And then the final piece of this, he basically says, hey, if you try to sweep your own house clean on your own, you try to sweep your own house clean on your own without the power of Christ, it's going to be powerless. Like without Christ, you are completely bankrupt. Because yeah, you may be able to overcome some of those things in your life that have been, that have been getting you down, that you've been struggling with. You may be able to overcome uh, for a few weeks to months to years the, the power that alcoholism holds over you for a season. You may be able to to overcome the power that pornography or sex outside of wedlock, the power, the seductive nature of that spiritual and demonic power, you may be able to overcome that for a season on your own. And so, so to speak, sweep out your own house a little bit. You may be able to clean yourself up a little bit so that everybody else thinks better of you the reality is what Jesus says, hey, if you haven't gathered with me, you're going to get scattered. This is not what Jesus wants. Otherwise, he would have never stopped to give this demon the boot in the first place. Because what Jesus wants is for you to be able to turn your attention off of little old sinful you. And turn your attention then to your great and grand and powerful and strong Savior in Christ so that you can. Worship your Father with your life. What well, what Jesus really wants in our lives is radical change and transformation. He wants us to go from being mute people who cannot worship Jesus with our lives to being people who are completely sold out radically for him. Listen, what Jesus is not looking for is a bunch of namby-pamby Christian dudes who run around sleeping with chicks and then, and then giving you the finger when you call them out for it. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. That's not the work of God in someone's life. But today in America, we have more of those people running around than we do actual Christians who have said, you know what, Jesus, because you laid down your life for me, I now want to be empowered by you. Deny myself by your strength. See, in our weakness, he is made strong. And that's what this message is really about, is the fact that Jesus is stronger than anything in as many circles as I tried to run in like this whole message, if you left with anything, is that Jesus is stronger than anything. Like all those things that have been in your life, Jesus is stronger than that. He is. And what he wants to do is make radical change. He wants to take people from being mute people who cannot worship God with their lives. He wants to turn them into people who do worship God such ways that we see demonic powers lifted, when we see eyes opened, where we see desires of our hearts changing, where we see the activity of our hands and the, and the way we live our lives actually changing from day to day. This is, this is what God is trying to do in the work of Jesus, he's trying to change the way that you and I think. See the transforming of our minds so that we no longer look at ourselves as being the hero. To look at Jesus as being the hero so that we no longer live as people who just express themselves all over the place to the detriment of the church and the detriment of our brothers and sisters and people who have been created in our image. Just express ourselves by saying whatever we want and doing whatever we want, but instead that we would be ruled ruled by the reign of Christ. I mean, we sang songs tonight that talked about Christ coming out of a grave and ruling and reigning. And we're singing those words as Christians intentionally because we believe in the work of the gospel which points to Jesus on a cross and an empty tomb. We don't believe that anybody here is going to do anything fantastically great apart from Christ. Jesus stronger than anything. So, so as I wrap up our time and get you guys out of here, we're going to close by, by engaging in communion together. So there will be two people that will come to serve communion here. And As they come and, and as you think about engaging in communion, I just want to say a couple things. And as you come to engage in communion, if you're a believer, if you come here tonight and you say, I've been trusting in Christ Life ain't perfect, but I'm progressing. I've been trusting in Christ to save me, and I recognize the filth and the mess of my life, and I've placed my trust and my faith in Christ to save me and to change me progressively moving forward. And there's something radical about God's word that captures my attention, and there's something radical that's taking place inside my heart whereby I am broken over my sin. I'm not trying to, like, blame my sin on other people anymore. I'm not like trying to excuse my sin either. I'm just looking at Jesus and clinging to this broken cross because I know that he who was perfect and had no reason to die ever since the wages or the paycheck for sin is death, since since he wasn't that person, he, he was perfect. He had no reason to die, but he died anyways. He died so that you and I could, by trusting in him, come to him, continue trusting him, continue coming to him so that he can continue being that strong person in our lives what I'm saying is this, that when Jesus went to the cross this wasn't a picture of weakness when he did this this is a picture of strength this is a picture of a man who laid down his life in his own strength so that you and I who were his enemies long before he did it mess up like we have that's strength that's strength for a person to say i know that you're going to make a wreck of your life i know that you're going to be uh you're going to talk trash about me i know that you're going to live your life in such a way that you are totally going to try to dethrone me and yet even though you're going to do that i'm still coming to die to pay a penalty so that you can then uh, trust in me and have faith in me as my father gives that to you That's the picture of the cross. A strong man on a cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Though Jesus did argue at times in scriptures, there were times for silence. Jesus was silent as a sheep before a shearer. That was immense strength. Man, when I go popping off of the mouth because I've had a long day and I think i got a right to say something, that's weakness. Jesus was silent knowing what he was about to do. And so as you and I come to engage in in communion, I want you to be reflecting and thinking about the strength that it took to give himself completely for yours and mine's sake, what it was like for him to be brutalized, murdered, to become bloody and have his flesh and his body ripped so that you and I could come and remember that picture of strength. That's the picture of Jesus for us tonight. Did you come in here feeling weak? I did. Did you come in here feeling like I got nothing to bring to the table? It's the way I felt. Trust in this, that though you and I have nothing to bring to the table, so to speak, and Jesus is sitting at the table, and he's inviting us to come there to feast on him who gives us our value, who gives us our worth, who gives us our being, who gives us our identity. It's all about Jesus. And in him, we find the strength to move forward. It's the power of his spirit that we continue to come back to this table and remember his shed blood and his broken body. Are there some of you that are here, you may not believe in Christ. You're here, somebody drug you here. Or maybe some quiet voice said, go ahead and come here. But you've never made that commitment to Jesus. you never said, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you. And if that's you and you're here and that's where you're at, what I want to say is don't take this meal. I'm, I'm I'm not telling you that because I don't like you. Trust me. I'm telling you that because I want to love you really well. The scriptures are really clear that if we attempt to take this meal, And if our hearts are not in a place where we are actively pursuing Jesus, then that is actually not an act of worship. It's actually an act of condemnation upon ourselves because we're putting a false face on and we're pretending to be somebody or something that we're not. And so we don't want that pressure to be here. Trust me, like, like, if there's two or three of you that are just still sitting there when the rest of us are taking communion, we are okay with that. We actually rejoice in that because we want this to be a safe place for those who are checking out who Jesus is and still trying to flesh it out and figure it out. And so just know that there's no pressure for you to engage in something that is, is not really you. But this could be that moment. And if it is, great. That moment where you say, man, I just, I, I'm a, i am I believe believe. Jesus changed me. Then you come. You come and you engage in this meal with us. There'll be servers here and uh, we'd love to serve you. Jesus is stronger than anything. Thank you for letting me preach tonight. I love you guys. Let me pray. Father, thank you. As people come to engage in communion, as we engage in worship, I pray, God, that your, your presence will be strong, thick, and powerful in our midst. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen.